What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. I think it's really problematic when you have leadership. Coaches spend more time with students than teachers do, right? Two and a half hours after school versus 45 minutes in a classroom. Why is it not mandated that coaches need to learn about consent, mm-hmm. um, sexual violence, right? Like you have the coach saying, if you're drinking, you're off this team. Like those rules are so hard and fast. And I'm pretty sure those kids from August to December are not drinking, right? And he doesn't finish the sentence. It should be like, if you are raping or harassing or witnessing anything, you're off the team. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we've talked to filmmaker Nancy Schwartzman, producer and director of the new doc, Roll Red Roll. The film is about the assault of a high school girl by members of the worshipped high school football team in Steubenville, Ohio. The boys will be boys culture that enabled them and how their small town got thrown into the national spotlight with no turning back. Also, I've got a special edition of Choice Words this week. It's a discussion that I had with sports writer Charles Modiano about Antonio Brown, the wide receiver for the New England Patriots, the rape allegations against him, and race. You're going to want to hear that. I also have a Just Stand Up Award, Just Sit Down Award, and more. But first, let's talk to Nancy Schwartzman. I love the film. Uh, saw it Thank on Netflix. You. It was fantastically done. Um, brought back a lot Thanks. of memories from covering the story five years ago. Stuff that I'd oh, okay. suppressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. not, not always pleasant ones. Um, so for you, uh, how long did it take you to do this project and why did you choose it? Yeah, um, you know, I started filming a year after, year to the date, really, um, of the incident. So August 2013, and then we wrapped uh, pretty much four years later. Um, you know, and I went back on that specific date, that weekend, because there had been so much coverage of the story, right? The story broke. Um, I heard about it when it went to the New York Times. So um, it had already begun to go viral at that point. And my question uh, a year later was, is there still a story here? Like this has really been covered. Um, And what I discovered in my first visit was that everywhere I went, everyone in town was talking about it. And it revealed to me, you know, this is an opportunity to look at the story and also show how a rape can ripple out and affect an entire community. Mm. And uh, what what attracted you to the story? Uh, Do you have Mm -hmm. um, any sort of personal history with either uh, jock culture or... Um, or, you know, in terms of your own background, was, was there anything in particular Mm -hmm. about it that, that made you say, this is the story I want to tell? Yeah. I mean, what, what really drew me to, to the story was, um, kind of the technology aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, it broke at the beginning of social media. It was this 
perfect and terrible moment when suddenly sort of everyone had Twitter and everyone had um, access to social media all over. It wasn't just like a couple hipsters in San Francisco or whatever, like suddenly everyone, kids in West Virginia, kids in Ohio, but it was before people understood how public it was really. And that anyone can find anything if they dig around. Um, So it was, that particular moment in time that I found really fascinating um, about how teenagers were using socials. And then from the sports perspective, um, you know, I didn't grow up, my father and my brother are obsessed with football, um, but we were uh, tennis players actually. So I had played, um, I've been with coaches since I was, you know, nine years old. So tennis is different obviously, but in terms of parents being obsessed with their children's performance, um, coaches having like a godlike influence on someone's life if they're an athlete, like that stuff was really familiar to me. Um, so, you know, the other piece of it also were, was this, those teenagers reminded me a lot of the school I went to, even though we weren't a football school, just like the boys who ruled the school and were sort of untouchable and didn't have to be accountable that was the climate of the high school and middle school that I went to as well. So that stuff felt really familiar. Mm. Now, the story itself, for people who aren't familiar or don't remember what happened in Steubenville, so they get a framework of what we're talking about. I mean, you have something that is probably too familiar, but gets uh, gets ignored or covered over mm-hmm. in, in too many communities. Uh, the idea of um, of football players uh, treating a, a drunk young woman as if she's an object um, and committing rape, sexual assault, and yet they get caught because they were pretty much doing a play-by-play of what was happening on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this, that story in and of itself is makes it something that that was exceptional at the time do you, do you think without the social media aspect people would have even noticed what had happened in Steubenville I don't think so I think um you know it's the social media was the documentation um and for me as an outsider I mean I started to understand who these kids were before I even uh got to Ohio because I was looking at the Twitter that was uncovered, um, that bloggers were blogging about, not just my protagonist, Alex Goddard, but there were people following the story because they love true crime and they love intrigue. Um, you know, but the social media voices, I was like able to start seeing who the characters were and really understand, Oh, this is the kid who started it all with Instagram photo. This is the kid who retweets everything and has all the LOL jokes about it. This is a kid who's trying to deny that he had anything to do with it. So you almost can see these like archetypes of any group dynamic, uh, whether it's a team, whether it's a gang, whether whatever, right? So the social media allowed people like me, you know, 100 plus miles away to be able to start understanding the case. Um, We can see in the film too that because also the hackers group Anonymous came in at the time, because I also think the climate nationally was starting to open up to take sexual violence more seriously. Um, I went back to the library in Steubenville and was looking through microfilm of 
what the newspaper, what the local newspaper had been covering a year prior to the case, just to see, you know, this was a tinder explosion, right? What was happening, you know, a year before. And there had been a lot of talk about rape in the military. And that was like a big national conversation and also a conservative conversation because the military cuts across, you know, it's bipartisan. So there are Republican uh, folks who support more transparency and stopping sexual violence in the military ranks. So um, it was hitting smaller, um, it was hitting smaller local papers, right? So I think people were more willing to talk about it um, 2012, 2013. The other thing I think the film shows is the legacy of violence in the area. Um, there was an outpouring of people's stories. Like there's multiple victims um, that span back for decades in the town. Mm. Wow. Now, how easy was it to get people to open up in Steubenville? Um, I would or say difficult, it was not I that should e- say. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it was not super easy. I mean, in, in my first visit back, I was really just doing a lot of listening around, kind of getting a, taking the temperature of, um, you know, what was on people's minds, what, what conversations were they having at the bar, the diner around, um, you know, this was a town that felt like it had really been burned by the media. Um, Anderson Cooper had been there. Dr. Phil did a special, you know, all of these, Oh, Chris Cuomo, you know, all these really recognizable folks had actually come to the town or reported on the story and, and done, you know, like a surface kind of take, um, so people in town felt really burned by the media. Um, so rolling in and trying to get people to talk to me was challenging. Also, when you're making a film, you know, you, you get someone to say, yeah, I'll talk to you. And then you're like, okay, hang on. I have to pull out tons of equipment <laughs> and set it up. Like it's not a notebook or recording device. It's like cameras, mic, all of that stuff. So I think the the common ground that everyone um, really wanted to talk about was how the incident affected them and the town like the the internet stormed in on this community and some people felt like they're trying to shut down our football team this is all we have we lost the steel mills this is our pride we're a tiny town and we're like a top ohio football team which is something to be proud of um however what's being talked about on the field and in the locker rooms is what needs to change right so business owners yeah, I think if, if when I was able to meet them sort of where they were um, and what their concerns were, like everyone thinks our town is synonymous with rape now, is anyone going to come visit? Like are our businesses going to tank, right? So um, allowing people to sort of share that without judgment, I think, was what enabled me to open the door. Was that challenging to share it without judgment? Because... Surely you, you have your own opinions about what took place and the the, uh, the accountability that the town needs to take. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a shop owner in the film who um, expresses, like, confusion, right? He's like, in my day, you know, this happened and you were a bad boy. Like, you didn't go to jail. And frankly, you reminded me of my grandfather. <laughs> like, I don't imagine my grandfather or people that I love in my life having the most evolved views on the topic of sexual violence. In a lot of ways, this is generational. Um, 
people are waking up and then there are people that are set in their ways. So of course the old guard is problematic in terms of how it views women and sexuality. Right. Um, but also a lot of these folks remind me of people I know, even, you know, the coach of the football team is really the patriarch of the town. And I talked to him for two years about being in the film. And I know that he's humbled. He's like a Catholic Italian lion. Right. But deep down, he's like really kind and cares about the kids. He's like the tough love gruff guy. And in the film, because it's a police interview, he looks terrible. I mean, he's a, he's a villain. Right. And I would say to him, like, coach, I know you're not just that person. Like he's learned. He, he told me, Nancy, I messed up. I should have taken him more seriously. Like he was humbled, but he wouldn't reveal that on camera because I think it's too much protection of like what he stands for. Um, so I looked at him and saw a very flawed, conflicted person and that's very human. Right. Um, but I couldn't, you know, he just wouldn't go on camera with me. Uh, unfortunately. So then we have who he is in a police interview, which is appalling, frankly. Yeah. How are you? Um, yeah. So, sorry. I, mm-hmm. I just want to ask, yeah. how, how are you, that, that's one of the, um, more stirring things in the film. How were you able to get a hold mm-hmm. of those police interviews? Yeah. And that was from uh, an investigative reporter who I built a relationship with uh, for a few years. Um, I had been trying to get closer and closer to those. I would have had to file a FOIA. Um, that probably would have taken a decent amount of time, especially for me as a kind of outsider. Um, at one point, the reporter said to me, look, I don't have time to write a book on this. And I trust you and I have all the files. Um, I'll hear a few guidelines that the attorney general's office wants me to follow and I'm handing these to you. So really it was like tenacity of sticking around and then building that relationship with the journalist who had the relationship with the AG's office of Ohio. So it was incredible. It was an incredible windfall for the project. Yeah, that must have been an incredible day. It was an amazing day. I was like floored. I um, It was actually 4th of July weekend when they arrived and I was envisioning these big old dusty boxes of files or something. I don't know. It was like in my head, it was a movie and I got just, you know, manila envelope with a bunch of jump drives. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is where they are. Um, and I had plans to go away that weekend and I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave my edit. I just was pinned watching everything. My jaw was open. Six, 16 hours of interviews um, because I had all the voices on social media that was publicly available. So all these kids, I could see their tweets and stuff. Then I got their text messages, 400,000. So we weren't released all of them, but we were given about 300 pages. So all the back and forth of the night of the aftermath covering their bases. And then I had the police interviews. So it's really like, three different voices or three different characteristics of each person and how they present themselves depending on who they're talking to. And that's, to me, is so fascinating. You know, you mentioned before that uh, your, your sports background is more in the world of tennis <laughs> uh-huh. um, and <clears throat> your, your high school didn't have a football team. I think that's interesting because you're coming at this from sort of an outsider perspective on football culture. Yep. Uh, seeing mm-hmm. it fr- from that uh, thousand yard view, 
Uh, do you think mm-hmm. that football and football culture, that some of the blame needs to be laid at the feet of that? Or is this like the intersection between misogyny and football? Like does, does football have some accounting, uh, the culture of football for what took place in Steubenville? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at the town and you look at resources in the town, um, this is a pretty rundown place. Um, they've had a lot of hard luck with business and steel mills shutting down. I mean, there's definitely middle class and shops and stuff up the hill, but downtown's pretty, pretty busted despite the efforts of some people. And then you have a state, a multi-million dollar football stadium for high school kids. I mean, that thing shines like a beacon, right? It's beautiful. It looks like college level. Um, I looked at that field. I see nothing wrong with people coming together on a Friday night. We all love Friday night life. You know, this Friday night, this is all we got to do in this town, you know, good old fashioned fun or whatever. But you look down at the field and I, there's not a woman on the field unless she's in, you know, a tiny, teeny, tiny outfit, no matter what the weather being a cheerleader. Right. So you have like 70 coaches or assistant coaches or staff, all men, you have tons of players, brand new uniforms, like all of this stuff. So if we're just looking at like number one, equity and and economics, it's really uneven, right? There's a horse that breeds fire on the stadium, like in, in the arena when there's a field goal and you look at that and you're like, Hmm, I wonder if, you know, the theater department has quite that same budget or yearbook or girl softball, right? So just from a money standpoint, all the money is going to the football program and it shows, I mean, they're really good players, right? Um, that doesn't seem fair to me at all. And I don't think it's fair to the students. Um, I think it's really problematic when you have leadership, coaches spend more time with students than teachers do, right? Two and a half hours after school versus 45 minutes in a classroom. Why is it not mandated that coaches need to learn about consent, mm-hmm. um, sexual violence, right? Like you have the coach saying, if you're drinking, you're off this team. Like those rules are so hard and fast. And I'm pretty sure those kids from August to December are not drinking, right? And he doesn't finish the sentence. It should be like, if you are raping or harassing or witnessing anything, you're off the team. So that's just fundamentally unsafe for the girls. And it's also unfair to the boys, right? Because that's how, if you don't set up that kind of model for what it means to be a leader. So here's a town that's just saying you're a leader because you're a good athlete and it doesn't say anything about what kind of person you are. And I think that's a problem in our larger culture, right? We like lionize athletes. I love athletes too. I love Olympians, like people who do incredible stuff. But if you're a domestic violence abuser, get off the team. Like you don't get to play and you don't get millions and millions of dollars. Like, um, you know, and this isn't to say like football's the reason football's the root cause of like poverty, right? Because I do understand that children don't have a way out of this place and football can be a way out. And that is hope on some level, but that's also a reflection of like a much bigger broken problem of like, why can't kids get a good education and why can't college be affordable so that they're only, you know, so it doesn't have to be that their only opportunity is football. Um, but, you know, boys covered up in clothing with all this padding in the winter, girls in basically bathing suits, cheering 
like that doesn't set up a very equitable picture, you know, and um, those are really old school dynamics that need to change, I think. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned before about a, a player uh, needing to be suspended or kicked off the team for being a bystander to sexual assault. There's yes. this part of the film where one of the police officers laments that there wasn't a hero, as he puts it on the mm -hmm. scene. I think he says hopes for a hero that just doesn't yeah. arrive on that evening. Uh, well, why, why do you think there was no hero that evening? Um, I think there was no hero that evening because, you know, the film uncovers that there have been prior rapes, right? So... So precedent had been set that you're a bystander. You know, this is what you do. Yeah. yeah, that this is what Trent Mays gets away with. This is what the rich kids or the popular kids or the good athletes get away with. These are their, their spoils, right? Um, so, of course, most of the kids, most of them white, most of them pretty privileged in that context, are going to look on and laugh. Um, you know? So there's no coach saying if any of you, if I hear that any of you are in the room while this is going on and you don't stop it, I will kick your ass, right? No, nothing, not a peep, not a peep. It's just about drinking and, and being a good athlete. And maybe that's because coach is 70 and doesn't know how to talk about sex, right? Or rape or power, but like they need to pull in experts who do. And I know that Cleveland Rape Crisis Center had offered to do workshops Columbus has Pittsburgh. I mean, there are cities that do this, right? No one was brought in. No one was invited in. Nothing was made mandatory. Well, I, I think this. I think this film should be seen as part of those kinds of workshops. Uh, have you gotten mm -hmm. any um, offers, or are there any openings to have this film be part of curricula for for college yeah. athletes or high school athletes? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, um, we're on Netflix now, um, in 138 countries, but prior to Netflix, we opened up, um, PBS's POV season. So we were on PBS and they do incredible stuff with films. Um, and we built two different curricula to go with the film. Number one, they're all free, how to break up clips, put them into classrooms, how to deconstruct the themes in the film co-written by male athletes and male activists. Um, and we've played in a bunch of high schools, but you know, the climate in the United States, I, I, maybe you don't, but in terms of getting sexual education into classrooms, it's really hard. Um, a lot of the students, we did a big kind of grassroots, um, screening campaign before our premiere. And we had like a hundred screenings across the country and teenagers had to lobby their schools to bring the film in. Right. And there were some incredible teams in like Bethesda and Kansas. We've had screenings all over where the schools have said, well, we don't think this is a problem in our school. And I mm. think every parent knows that's bullshit. <laughs> and this is going on in all the schools. Um, so we're trying really hard. I mean, everything's available. So anyone who wants the film can have it. And we've we've done hundreds of screenings. So we know it's getting out there. But in terms of mandating it you know the ncaa has been dragging their feet we've definitely been in touch the nsl i mean give me a break on that one but um you know there's a lot of colleges and networks and fraternal networks and stuff but the big places that need to kick open the doors and shine a light on 
you know, boys will be boys and boys who turn into men behavior unchecked, you know, they need to, they need to reckon with their problem and uh, they're being a little slow about it. Frankly. Mm. Well, the film is roll red roll. It's available on Netflix. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like people to know about the documentary and what went into it and how, how you want people to understand and ingest your work? Sure. I mean, you know, essentially I, I made this film as sort of a call to action and I definitely designed it so that men would respond, right? So often um, stories of sexual violence or rape really center the victim and scrutinize the victim unjustly in a lot of ways. And I think that also is why it's easy to silo films like that and say, oh, okay, well, it's about rape, so it's for women. And for me, I wanted to really flip that on my head, on its head. And, you know, this is about pack mentality. This is about entitled athletes, which could be any entitled group, really. But this is about what men overhear in all male spaces. And what I love, what I've heard from audiences is, is men will say, man, that film shook me. <laughs> like, it shook me. Um, I heard things that I've overheard as a teenager or an adult. Like, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable because it's really true. And I think we've all been there. Um, the girls who victim blame in the film are very familiar to me. They're very familiar. Those are teen girls, really. Myself included at the time. Like, I'm not excusing myself. So I think the bigger idea is that we're all a product of this culture. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. Being a star football player shouldn't mean that you commit sexual violence, right? Like we shouldn't make those assumptions and we don't have to. And I do think with the right leadership, with the right coaching models, um, things can shift. I think the majority of us don't condone rape. We just stand by and sort of, do nothing about it. So I, I wanted to show that context and um, and not normalize it, you know, really show it for what it is. And it's so unpleasant yet familiar. Um, I hope it inspires people to take action and make changes in their own communities, on their own teams, with their own kids, you know? Well, yeah, I do. I, the, the, um, I, I face that uh, trying to raise some young athletes in my home, certainly. Um, and mm. I... I'm, I'm definitely going to show the 15-year-old this film. Uh, the 11-year-old, I might oh, wait good. a little bit, but I'm going to show the 15-year-old yeah. this film. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much for doing the work, and thanks so much for appearing on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now I've got some choice words with Charles Modiano speaking about Antonio Brown, but first a quick word from The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and the nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe and now charles modiano uh we're taking it now to the case of new england patriots wide receiver antonio brown mm -hmm. 
Now, for folks who haven't heard, um, Antonio Brown is somebody who uh, engineered his departure from the Oakland Raiders using a lot of creative means, using social media. Uh, he just did not want to play for the Raiders. He made his own slick video about why he wanted to leave. He used a lot of rhetoric about freedom. And a lot of people thought that he was, you know, first people were calling him crazy, and then he got released and then signed by the New England Patriots, and people were calling him crazy like a fox. He got away from a very ramshackle organization coached by John Gruden, who we'll talk about in a second, uh, to going to really, even though it breaks my heart to say it, the class organization of the National Football League, the New England Patriots. And what happened, the bombshell news of what happened earlier this week is that he was accused of sexual assault. He was accused of of rape in a civil suit uh, by a woman named Brittany Taylor, who was his uh, tr- personal trainer. He's some, she's somebody who he went to college with. They were in Bible study together at Central Michigan, and he hired her as a personal trainer. Now, what makes this case particularly damning already, um, and when I say damning, I got to keep going with allegedly and whatnot, because we allegedly also have uh, emails and text messages that Brittany Taylor um, has released. Um, and these these emails, they are, are brutal. They, they are they are they admit to an assault. They are very violent. And um, but Antonio Brown maintains his innocence and says that it very expressly that this is a money grab. And um, and what's in, I don't you know here's the thing, as we discuss this, I, w- I would love your thoughts on it. I would lay out a couple of things. These these issues are very difficult to talk about uh, because it, it is very important that people are able to have their day in court and be able to. Uh, you're not guilty until proven innocent in this country. At the same time, we also have to be very clear that according to the Department of Justice. I mean, overwhelmingly, over 90% of, I mean, women uh, just don't accuse men of rape uh, falsely. Like, it happens such a small percentage of the time, largely because of what women have to go through, largely because of what Brittany Taylor is already going through at the hands of Antonio Brown's attorneys, because this is what you do if you're an attorney in this case, is you attack the person who is saying saying that they, they are the survivor of an assault. And... Now we're left with this case. And so the questions uh, that are coming up from a sports perspective are really what is Roger Goodell going to do, the commissioner of the National Football League? Because rumors are out now that he's talking about suspending Antonio Brown until this case is adjudicated, which is interesting, I will say, because the NFL has no real policy when it comes to these issues. I mean, there have been players who've been accused like LaShawn McCoy, not suspended. Patrick Chung of the Patriots in the offseason, found doing cocaine, not suspended. But then a player like Ezekiel Elliott, on very sort of uh, specious circumstances, suspended for six games uh, for um, assault allegations. So it's very willy-nilly how the NFL does these things. And then, on top of all this, Chuck, I'm going to throw this on, too. Mm-hmm. Um a similar situation this past offseason where Luke Walton, the white coach mm-hmm. of the Sacramento Kings, incredibly high-profile player, so, uh, uh, a coach, former coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, for goodness sakes. There's, there's no more high-profile job yeah. than that. Um, when, when he And, of course, he's the son of Bill Walton. He played in the NBA. Um, when he was accused of sexual assault, 
uh, there wasn't nearly yeah. the uproar yeah. that there is around this. Now, we could talk about that in terms of Luke Walton getting a pass because of whiteness and there being a double standard. Maybe we could talk about the fact that Antonio Brown has also sort of put a target on his back the way he um, orchestrated his exit from Oakland. Um, and maybe that's you know, he's been, this has been the number one media figure in sports yeah. the last month. So maybe this is getting that much more publicity than Luke Walton because of that. It could be the emails also. But Antonio Brown's contesting whether or not they're real. But they, like you, you read them and you think, my goodness, this person uh, is a t- just a terrible, terrible human being. Like you read this. This is misogyny and violence 101. So how do you talk about this issue? How should we talk about this issue? I mean, because you have to talk about the, You have to talk about this. I mean, but I'm a believer that you had to talk about it with Luke Walton as well. I mean, when when, when athletes are accused uh, of of sexual violence, I mean, there there needs to be a broader discussion about it. There, there right? There needs to be. Um, but how we have the discussion is so important. That's the you important. might have heard about Omar Kelly, uh, who's a known sports writer in Florida. Yeah, um, he has deleted these tweets, but he went on on a rant on Twitter about how this is all about how athletes get targeted um, by by gold diggers, basically, and that you know we should be looking at this totally from the lens of athletes get targeted. And I gotta say, like you look at the DOJ stats on this. I mean, that that just doesn't bear up. So you said a lot there. You said a whole lot. And I'm sorry. No, I just it's wanted, good. Partly, it's I wanted good. to get it all out. So no, it's it's good, Dave. And you know, I've been I've been reticent on it, and I haven't tweeted about it um, because, quite frankly, the forum of Twitter and other places, I feel like I have to be in the right forum. To add the context, I, I, so this is the conversation we had, Jay Z. This is on steroids, where I have a certain mm-hmm. amount of uncomfortability. So before I, I start try to answer these questions, maybe I want to lay out what that where that uncomfortability is as a white man. And there's so there's gender issues and there, and, and there's sexual assault. And you're right, we have to talk about sexual assault, but I have to also have to know that the listener is hearing sexual assault and not anti-blackness. So there's these these intersecting pieces. So when you so I am of I'm of two warring minds, right? What's the impact of my words? So which one do you want the the the, the defensive side or you want the before I do just another yeah. aspect of this because I teach a class at Montgomery mm-hmm. College. Shout out to Montgomery College. We teach a All sports right. history class. They they're, they're amazingly supportive to me. And the class we do there, I was talking to a student, and they said something which I've heard on also on social media, which is. Well, the timing of this is very suspicious. Yeah. Right after going yeah. to the Patriots, and but then the response to that has to be: it's not for people, and specifically not for men, to talk about the timing of when someone comes mm-hmm. forward with a sexual assault allegation, because that can be so incredibly difficult yeah. to do. Yeah. That who is really to say? Yeah, I mean, it's a bad discussion. I mean, if we if we take two steps, and I don't want to be um, insensitive just by doing this, but I just want to add context: two steps before we learned. Of about the, the sexual assault um, um, lawsuit, mm-hmm. um, I, I was both you know team A B because I I'm for um, players having as much control as possible, but I've also put out there that some of his erratic behavior in the last couple of years, this is before the sexual assault, that I believe he's also a candidate for CTE, and the the the, the parallel I would use was Chris Henry, who died, a wide receiver for the Bengals, who died at age 26, who had very erratic behavior in the last couple of years, and then they looked at his brain and it was all messed up at only age 26. Yeah. And I've seen some fell of Fell off a truck. Fell off a truck. 
and I've seen some of the hits Antonio Brown takes. So I don't know if he does. I don't know, but but I believe that should be within the discussion somewhere. So I think that's where I was before this case. Then you see that one. It's so funny you say that because yeah. I'm I'm very. Uh... Um, uncomfortable with that as well. I, I respect you for bringing too. it up because we're making these like psych- – and I've heard other people use the words bipolar. And we're making uh, psychological evaluations with very little information. I'm not saying he has it. I'm saying it has should be on the table just mm. as a consideration. That's all. The behavior has been erratic. And the, the part that, that's certainly disturbing to me is that people in Oakland who were supportive yep. of Antonio Brown would tell stories of him – Flipping from like super enthused to being really sad yeah. to the point of tears. Yeah. Well, so so I was I was thinking before this. Um. So the, there's this is loaded. So now here we are. Um. Maybe let me talk about what makes me uncomfortable with the current discussion, and then I'll talk about what makes me uncomfortable. What I perceive is that I can't tell the difference if someone is. I know when Dave Zirin is talking about it. They're coming it from from a equality perspective, for stopping sexual assault perspective. But when I hear a lot of these other sportscasters, particularly white sportscasters, talking about it, what I'm hearing is anti-blackness. And I know it when I hear mm-hmm. it and I look at your record and who else have you gone after. So I'll get to that in a second. But first, let me tell you what's troubling about the current conversation. I just say, though, that like people, um, particularly on Fox Sports, I'm not naming names, who have a disdain for both women and black athletes? Yeah. I think this is the moment where they find themselves torn. Right? Like, who, who should I hate more? Right. Right. So here's what's troubling for me. We, you know, we, we 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 don't know what happened, and and then and we'll talk about those emails in a second. I'm looking all over Twitter, and you're having a, a big segment of the male population across race who believe she's she's lying end of story she's lying they may even cite to a video in between a couple of the stalls where where they say it's there she's friendly case closed um there was some friendly interaction um before the final assault she's lying da 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 and, and the number the volume of men who just automatically believe it so without any um investigation without doing anything i find very very troubling um and well because you know if you have a little bit of knowledge about behavior of of individuals who've been sexually assaulted or in domestic violence, it's not that uncommon to continue an abusive relationship. So, so it may not be intuitive from the man's point of view, but it's not uncommon. And so we have a lot of people talking about something that they've done very little study and yeah. research, and there are tons of people who know a hell of a lot more than I do. I'm not qualified to talk about it, but I'm more qualified than these idiots mm-hmm. that, that I hear um, um, all over the sports yeah, Omar, talk radio. Omar Kelly said because she didn't report it, so then yeah. we shouldn't believe so, her. Right. Like, and we, and we know that's right not away. uncommon it's just either. Like, that's just not how it works. Right. So, so if you study, you know, that's not uncommon. Either. But here's what really bothers me. Here's what really, really bothers me about the whole thing. There are hundreds of women, maybe more, who in the last two years of the Me Too movement have been trying to who've been raped and are trying to summon up the courage to name their accusers. Just to have that one day, they're coming out of, just get that courage. Every day going by to get that courage and what will happen. And they are seeing Brittany uh, uh, Taylor's, Brittany Taylor being crushed mm-hmm. before any investigation happens. And you know what's happening, right? As, as this crushing is happening, they're saying, nah, I'm going to suffer in silence. Mm. Because the only thing it's worse than suffering in silence about my rape is to get that. 
and get crushed like that. Mm-hmm. And that's the troubling part. It's like folks aren't even withholding judgment. I'm talking about folks like men, you know, across the board. And, and that's troubling. That's really, really troubling. So, so what is the impact of that? Well, there's a deep impact on a lot of other women who are now going to shut up about what happened to them. Mm-hmm. So that bothers me. And it, and 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 it, I didn't jump in and stuff like that because I just we were having a forum here. We could talk like adults about these nuanced ways that is difficult in in other forums, but we have to talk about that. And then there's a warring side of me, right? There's this warring side of me is saying I'm also looking say at, at the emails and the responses to Antonio Brown. And I'm reading anti-blackness. So, yes, take that email that he had. Yes, it was horrible, horribly sexist, horribly degrading. And the ignoring of Luke Walton. Ignoring of Luke Walton. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But let me just say something. So I started reading the comments under the email. I can't remember. Some white sportscaster put, put it out there. I started reading the comments. And the vast majority of the comments, oh, by, by mostly white men, by the way, weren't about the case. They were about Antonio Brown's English, his syntax. He obviously wasn't, you saw Mm -hmm. the email, wasn't a King's English or anything like that. Did he go to college? How stupid is he? What I was reading in the comments from these white people was anti-blackness. It wasn't feminism. It was racism. Totally. And I knew it and I saw it. So this discussion in the wrong parts is just pushing anti-blackness, is pushing white supremacy, is pushing this. You are more concerned about his syntax than having any nuanced discussion of what happened. So me, I have to be very, very careful when I put something out. What am I putting out and what's the impact and what's the the discussion? We have a little more control here in this forum to, to have that discussion. And then... When I see a number of these sportscasters and then or ESPN and I know my history of sexual assault, the other the other um, former Pittsburgh Steeler, Ben Roethlisberger, had his story Mm. suppressed for two and a half days by ESPN and other places when the new lawsuit broke. I know about Brett Favre when he exposed himself to to um, to um, I can't remember her name right now. So I apologize for that. But the cheerleader Mm -hmm. and that story was suppressed by media. I know that when Peyton Manning's story of his assault and his trainer was suppressed for like 15 years until I think a few years ago, Sean King exposed the, the affidavit that was out there. So, so we have this history. I know I wrote an article on Johnny Manziel's domestic violence, and, 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 and Colleen Crowley had a, a ruptured eardrum. You know what it takes mm-hmm. to get a ruptured eardrum? It looks a whole lot like a Ray, a, a Ray Rice video. Mm-hmm. And there was no commentary on that. And it was framed in his addiction. And it was a problem. And so, so you have this all these white athletes. You mentioned Luke Walton, and these same people aren't talking about them. And mm-hmm. so, so are you having fake love for domestic violence, fake love for sexual assault, or is it anti-blackness? Because I don't hear you talking about that. I hear you honoring, I see you honoring the military and the police at your football game, but I don't Mm -hmm. see you commenting on the rape epidemic in the military. I don't Mm -hmm. see you commenting that police are two to four times more likely to have domestic violence at home. You ain't, you're not saying anything. Oh, you never hear that. You never say that. So do you care about domestic violence or do you not? Do you care about sexual assault or do you not? I'm talking to white people here. Black people can have their internal conversation how they want. I have no say in that. It's nothing to do with me. I'm talking about the white men who, who are 85% of sports editors and 80% of, of columnists who aren't saying anything about these other things. And when you say nothing about it, and when you omit all these other cases, yeah, I think you're racist. 
racist. Yeah, I think it's anti-blackness. And I don't think you care at all about women. So I feel that. And yet that does not take away from what I said at the beginning, that this is a horrible conversation. And when a woman gives a very serious allegation, we should take it damn seriously. And we shouldn't dismiss it. So I got these warring sides going on. And I don't always know when's the right move. You see, I would argue those aren't warring sides at all. I would argue that that's trying to give a holistic view of the issue. The the problem, and you, you alluded to this before, is that because we live in an era of sound bites and 280 characters, I mean, that's a very difficult mm-hmm. thing to put down. It's possible to do, I think, what you said mm-hmm. in like an 800-word column. And that's why I think mm-hmm. that form of writing is still so important. Mm-hmm. But yeah, doing it Twitter style is rough. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the reasons why if I haven't tweeted about Antonio Brown. What I've done is just like I've written two columns about it for the nation and I've just posted the columns mm-hmm. with no commentary. Yeah. Like, And that's sort of my way of saying if you want to know what I think yeah. here you go because I'm not trying to do that um, 280 character <laughs> right. nonsense. It's impossible. Because like I, I thought so I don't think but I, I really want to stress this like I don't think what you said are warring sides. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's one argument about how to understand the issue. Thank you so much, Charles Modiano. Thank you so much, Mr. Chuck. And now I've got the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a repeat winner, Mr. Kenny Stills, wide receiver now with the Houston Texans. And I wanted to mention Kenny Stills because... He was traded unceremoniously from the tanking Miami Dolphins to the Houston Texans. It was his first game in a Houston Texans uniform. He's playing in very unfriendly environs for Kenny Stills' politics. And yet Mr. Stills still took a knee during the national anthem. And then he caught what should have been the game-winning touchdown against the New Orleans Saints. Of course, Drew Brees then brought the team down the field in 37 seconds for a game-winning 58-yard field goal, and that sort of ruins the narrative of Kenny Stills. But still, I wanted to give him a shout-out, Kenny Stills, for keeping it 100. The Just Sit Down Award... Sit your ass down! I mean, it involves two of my least favorite people in two separate incidences, two of my least favorite modern sports people. Uh, One of them is Kobe Bryant. The other is Tim Tebow. Two very different stories, but let me just throw down with this. For Kobe Bryant, it was his public excoriation of a member of his 7th grade girls basketball team that he is coaching. The team came in 4th place and Kobe had them pose with miserable looks on their faces and then wrote in his Instagram caption of the picture of his miserable looking team, the seventh player, not in the pick, missed this game for a dance recital, so that should tell you where her focus was at the time. Look, there are two kinds of coaches, and people who've listened to the Edge of Sports podcast when we've had Joe Ehrman on, the person who wrote Coaching for Life, you know those two kinds of coaches. There's the transactional coach and the transformational coach. The transactional coach is in it just for themselves. The transformational coach is in it because they want to change lives. Guess which one Kobe Bryant is? And I gotta tell you, Kobe got so much backlash for putting out this caption for putting a 12-year-old on blast for going to a dance recital that he basically had to sort of explain it away and do an apology and put up pictures of the girls smiling. 
And at the end of the day, this whole Mamba mentality stuff is ridiculous. And I was alerted to the fact that Kobe Bryant uh, is now a part of an Aspen Institute initiative that's trying to turn around the sad truth that 70% of kids under the age of 13 uh, actually quit youth sports. And yet, why do kids quit youth sports according to the data that I've seen? It's because of coaches exactly like Kobe Bryant. So this is truly putting the wolf in charge of the hen house if you're having him lead the way on how to keep young people in youth sports. So Kobe Bryant, please, you and the Mamba mentality, sit your ass down. Now, the other Just Sit Your Ass Down award goes to Tim Tebow for going on first take and screeching that college athletes should not be paid. Look, if you're Tim Tebow and you have failed upward your entire life since your time at Florida playing college football, and now you are telling everybody else that they need to shut their mouths and just play and generate billions of dollars that they will not see, please, Tim Tebow, please, check that privilege and sit your ass down. Uh, One more thing about Tim Tebow that I just want to throw in there at the same time. Tim Tebow's experience as a college athlete is so singular, so singular. His defenders are saying, how dare you contradict Tim Tebow? How dare you challenge him? He's a college athlete. He's a scholarship athlete. His experience is valid. Look, Tim Tebow's experience is valid only to Tim Tebow. It is a singular experience. It is a privileged experience. The only thing I could compare it to is when Donald Trump Jr. says he understands coal country because he went to boarding school in coal country. Tim Tebow is exactly the kind of person who shouldn't be listened to when it comes to the issue of paying college athletes. Exactly the kind of person who should just sit his ass down. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have this week's show. Thank you to the sponsor of this program, The Nation Magazine. Uh, Go back, if you can, and listen to the ad we put in there for The Nation, because if you go to thenation.com slash subscribe, guess what you're doing? You are actually increasing... Uh, the continuation of this podcast. So please subscribe to The Nation. That's what you can do for us. You can also go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.